Industry Pods and Evergreen Podcast Network are pleased to present the following podcast. All right, I guess we'll get started. My name is Dustin Robinson. Um, the way we're going to do this today is we're going to, I'm going to go through some slides that I put together, kind of just giving an overview of the industry, uh, and then we're going to let Michael uh, talk a little bit about what he, we're working on here in Florida as far as legalization goes. Um, but why don't we just start off, I guess, with some intros. You want to introduce yourself quick? Sure. You guys are all like hiding in the back, which is kind of weird. But anyway, uh, I'm Michael Griego. I'm actually an elected member of the state legislature. So I have been serving in the Florida House of Representatives for the last four years, running for the state senate now. Uh, I represent Miami Beach, downtown Miami, and Little Havana, and North Bay Village. And when I first got in, I filed a full rec marijuana bill my first year in 2019, and then subsequently working with Dustin, who's a dear friend of mine as well, um, we worked on a full uh, full legalization on a mushroom bill. So we did a, did a psilocybin bill, it's probably, what was it, like 60 pages long? And Something then, like that. And then this past year, we uh, kind of cobbled it down to something more palatable, and it hasn't moved this year, but expectations are that we're gonna see some movement in the psychedelic space going into 2022, 2023. So that's a quick kind of synopsis of who I am and then I'll turn it over to Dustin. Awesome, yeah, so my name is Dustin Robinson. Uh, we're three hats in the regulated substances industry. First is my legal hat through my law firm, Mr. Cannabis Law, where we represent various cannabis and psychedelic companies. My other hat is my advocacy hat through my nonprofit, Mr. Psychedelic Law, which uh, advocates for legal reform around psychedelic medicines. And my final hat is my investor hat uh, through Eater Investments, which is a venture capital firm that's investing in psychedelic biotech companies. So first place to start, I guess, is what compounds are actually considered psychedelics. Um, there are a class of compounds that produce changes in perception, mood, and cognitive processes. So that's the very basic definition. Um, some of the ones you might know, naturally derived psilocybin, DMT, ibogaine, there's plenty others. Um, some of the synthetic ones that you might know about, MDMA, LSD, um, and there's, there's many more as well. And right now there's actually a lot of different psychedelic analogs that are being created synthetically as well. Um, cannabis actually technically does fit within psychedelics, but for purposes of this presentation, we're going to kind of assume that cannabis is not considered a psychedelic. So the, the, the thesis around this industry, I tell people, is kind of there, there's three items, factors that are really pushing uh, this industry forward. Number one is that we're in a global mental health crisis. So billions of people are suffering globally from mental and behavioral health. I personally think it's the largest problem society is facing is the mental health crisis. Um, the second thing to understand is that the current pharmaceuticals for mental health and behavioral health really just aren't cutting it. Um, they have horrible side effects, they're just not working. Um, and the third factor is that while we have this huge problem with mental health and the current pharmaceuticals not working, the psychedelic compounds are showing tremendous efficacy 
uh, for various mental and behavioral health conditions with the great safety profile. So these next few slides are really just going to demonstrate those, those three factors that I just described. So this is mental health issues. Like I mentioned, over a billion people are currently suffering. Um, and I actually think the number is much higher. I think there's a lot of people that are underreporting. Um, so I think it's a tremendous problem that we're facing. Um, the impact is huge, 16 trillion being spent on this mental health issue. Um, gonna go up to 31 billion and then 238 billion by 2020. The modern therapeutics are not working. I think the right in the bottom right hand corner, I think is what tells it all. A lot of people don't realize that the current benzos and SSRIs for mental and behavioral health, they were developed in like the 80s and 90s. So there's been very little to no innovation for the past three decades. And so in many respects, the pharmaceutical industry has almost given up on a lot of these mental and behavioral health conditions. Um, and these, co these companies that are listed right here are fat and happy because they're getting their people addicted and not actually solving the root, root issue. Also have horrible side effects, so there's this huge problem and, and right now these current pharmaceuticals just aren't working. Um, these are some of the different clinical trials that are going on. This is a non-exhaustive list. Um, but we just kind of put the compound across the horizontal and the indication on the vertical. Um, but there's plenty more. Um, pain, eating disorder, um, it's almost like every single indication right now is being researched and explored um, with psychedelic medicines. Clinical trials right now, ketamine is, uh, is actually that's actually not supposed to be, say, actually, yeah, it is correct. So ketamine is FDA approved as an anesthetic. Um, it's actually schedule three. So it's the only psychedelic compound that is not schedule one. So it's FDA approved and currently ketamine is being used off label for various mental and behavioral health conditions. For example, we got uh, Myself Wellness here, which runs a ketamine clinic in Bonita Springs. Totally legal what they're doing um, from both a state and federal perspective. So. You know, this isn't the cannabis world where you're operating federally legally. Uh, in this instance, you're actually operating federally legally. Um, there's also MDMA clinical trials going on right now. Um, for PTSD, they're in phase three clinical trials. We actually expect that MAPS will get MDMA approved for PTSD probably in 2023. Um, it will likely be commercialized by 2024. And so you're going to be seeing a lot of clinics opening up um, that will be delivering MDMA psychedelic assisted therapy because the way these compounds are being approved with the FDA right now, it's under what's called a REM, a risk evaluation mitigation strategy that actually requires that they're administered at a clinic. So um, right now, if you have depression or something, you probably go to your pharmacy and you pick up your prescription and you take it at home. Under this psychedelic paradigm, um, totally different, you're actually gonna go into a clinic where it's actually administered at the clinic um, under the guidance uh, of therapists. Uh, psilocybin is in phase two clinical trials for major depressive disorders. There's also a phase two clinical trial going on for AUD, as well as treatment-resistant depression. LSD is in clinical trials, DMT. This is also a non-exhaustive list. So, the point of this list is to just show you that there is a lot of different compounds going through clinical trials and I think over the course of the next three to ten years you're going to start seeing a lot of different psychedelic compounds as well as psychedelic analogs being approved by the FDA. This slide just shows how capital intensive it is, um, you know, to start a cannabis company or a beer cannabis company, 
you could kind of um, bootstrap, maybe spend a few million dollars, get it off the ground. When you're doing pharmaceutical drug development, it costs hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, so extremely capital intensive. Um, psychedelics show promising results. Um, you know, and what's most important on the slide is the last column. Uh, the FDA has actually designated both psilocybin and MDMA as breakthrough therapies. So a lot of people are kind of surprised when they hear I'm in psychedelics. They're like, the FDA won't even get, or the federal government won't even get behind cannabis. How are you working on psychedelics? And I have to correct them that, in my opinion, the federal government actually takes a more preferential stance with respect to psychedelics compared to cannabis, as demonstrated by the fact that the FDA has designated both MDMA and psilocybin as breakthrough therapies. What breakthrough therapy designation actually means in FDA language is that they looked at the preliminary research for MDMA and psilocybin, and based on that preliminary research, it was showing just as much efficacy, if not more efficacy, uh, compared to the current pharmaceuticals in the industry for those indications with a better safety profile. So when you're doing FDA stuff, it's efficacy and it's safety, um, and right now, MDMA and psilocybin are showing tremendous promise, as well as various other psychedelic compounds. Safety is incredible. You know, everyone talks about safety. Really, when you do clinical trials, phase one is just about safety. So before you could even look at efficacy, you got to do safety. And right now, these compounds showing tremendously good um, safety profiles. Legalization, decriminalization. So these are what we just talked about was kind of what's going on at a federal level. That's like FDA, DEA stuff. But there's a lot of movement going on at a city and state level, very similar to what we saw with cannabis. Uh, the first is legalization. Um, that's actually creating a commercialized framework where people could have licenses and sell, much like we see with the cannabis market. Um, Oregon passed Measure 109. They're actually accepting applications starting January uh, of next year. They will be accepting applications to apply to be um, a psilocybin producer, a psilocybin uh, service center, so psilocybin facilitator, or a testing lab. So they'll be rolling that out in Oregon. A lot of other states have proposed bills, including Florida, which Mike Greco will talk about in just a minute. Um, but we've tried to propose basically this bill in the previous legislative session uh, on a commercialized framework. Decriminalization is different than legalization. It's basically just moving it as the lowest priority um, for that particular city or state. Uh, just because something's decriminalized, it doesn't create any sort of commercial market. So for example, Denver decriminalized. So my law firm was getting a lot of calls from people in Denver that you know wanted to start selling mushrooms. Just because a city or a state decriminalized doesn't mean that you could actually, it's still criminal to conduct any commercial activities. Um, and then there's a lot of research bills coming out, which is actually the bill that Michael filed um, just recently. And the concept behind these research bills that are getting passed in some of these states is that fine, if you don't want to legalize these compounds, that's fine. But the FDA is recognizing that these compounds work. And we're in a mental health crisis, so why not at least research it? And that's something that really, I don't think, regardless of your political affiliation, I don't know how you don't get behind that. Right now, MDMA in their phase three clinical trials uh, basically showed that two-thirds of people that went under MDMA psychedelic-assisted therapy, uh, two-thirds of them no longer were clinically diagnosed with PTSD after going through that treatment. That's incredible. The idea that we could save two-thirds of the vets is something that should talk to both sides of the aisle, and it's something that, at the very least, we should be researching. 
right to try act. Um, so this is an, uh, an actual federal law. So the right to try act basically allows people that are, have terminal illnesses to access uh, medicines that are being uh, researched in clinical trials. So one of the conditions to be able to access a particular drug is that it's passed at least phase one FDA clinical trials. Psilocybin and MDMA have passed phase one clinical trials pretty soon. DMT, 5-MeO-DMT, Ibogaine. So right now psilocybin is the one that really people are trying to access this medicine under the Right to Try Act. And once again, the, the, the concept behind the Right to Try Act is like if you have a terminal illness and you're at the very end, you don't have time to wait for these clinical trials to be done. So if, so if a compound has already proved safety in phase one clinical trials, then we should allow these people to have access since they have a terminal illness. Um, so really the criteria, you basically need if you know, you're God forbid, you know, looking to access psilocybin under the Right to Try Act, you actually have to work um, with a doctor to basically make sure you fit all this criteria. The challenge is, is that you would actually have to get it supplied by Compass Pathway. That's the company that's the sponsor for the phase two clinical trials for psilocybin, and they are not currently willing to provide it to anyone. So basically, even though the Right to Try Act is pretty interesting, and there's actually been some court cases filed, uh, around the Right to Try Act for psilocybin. Um, realistically, until Compass Pathway or USONA or some of these other sponsors agree to provide it, really not an opportunity. There's actually something going on in Canada, um, very similar. They have called something called the Special Access Program, and they actually uh, just this January amended it to allow specifically for psilocybin and MDMA, and it doesn't need to come from a sponsor on a drug development just needs to be provided by someone who has a dealer's license, which is kind of equivalent to a DEA registration here in Florida. Um, so that's, that's the right to try. Uh, religious exemptions, I'm not going to go too far in detail, but there are a lot of psychedelic churches opening up, uh, Church of Ayahuasca or Church of Psilocybin. Uh, basically, this all started with RIFRA, Religious Freedom and Restoration Act, in 1993. Um, and there's been a lot of laws and things that have happened. This is a very gray area, um, but recently the DEA just did update their guidelines and they allow for people to essentially apply uh, for, to be a church of ayahuasca. But the problem is, is part of the factors, the three factors are a substantial burden to sincere, uh, to sincere religious exercise. But if you look at the very last bullet point, um, a religious organization is prohibited from using the psychedelic substance until it receives a DEA certificate. So while you apply for the DEA, you basically have to stop practicing your religion and thereby essentially admitting that it's not your sincere religious exercise. So there's been a lawsuit filed around that because you basically are applying and you have to prove it's sincere. You basically can't live without this. This is part of your religion, yet at the same time, while you're waiting, um, you have to stop practicing your religion. So a lot of people have stopped. No, people are now not registering to the DEA and instead like taking the position that it's unconstitutional and they're basically just um, starting these church churches as religious nonprofits, 501c3 or whatever provision they're filing under. Um, this is just kind of like this, the, the value chain as I see it. Um, you know, some of you guys might be interested in getting involved in the industry. Um, you have consumer products. There's actually a couple mushroom companies on the floor right now. These are non-psychedelic compounds, right? So there's hundreds of strains of mushrooms. Some of them are served in a salad. Um, so, you know, you could actually 
do non-psychedelic compounds are totally, or non-psychedelic mushrooms are totally legal. Um, drug discovery and development, drug delivery systems, supply and manufacturing, digital infrastructure, and, and clinics and administration. The clinics are uh, an important piece right now because like I mentioned before, these psychedelic compounds are going to be delivered at these clinics. Uh, at least right now, it's not looking like they're gonna be um, take-home pharmaceuticals. Intellectual property, I would say that um, patents are probably the most important part of the industry right now. In order to have a patent, it needs to be novel and non-obvious. Um, there's basically two different types of patents, composition of matter patent, method of use patent. Um, and so really, there's been an explosion with patents over the past few years. So this is kind of why investors are flowing into the industry and there's kind of a race around the industry. It's also um, a highly contentious area because you definitely cannot uh, get a patent on psilocybin, DMT, or something that's naturally growing. I mean, you, you just can't get a patent on it. In order to get a patent, it has to be novel and non-obvious. There's nothing novel and non-obvious about you know taking psilocybin from the ground that naturally just grew out of the ground. Um, so what a lot of drug uh, companies are doing are building different analogs off of these psychedelic compounds and new chemical entities that is just really improving upon the compound. So for example, psilocybin lasts eight hours. Um, some companies are researching and creating analogs that would reduce that trip to you know, one to two hours. So you know, if you're going into a clinic, you have major depressive disorder, and you want to have a psilocybin experience, do you want to be in that clinic for eight hours? Probably not. If they could deliver the medicine in one to two hours, you could come off your trip, hour three, you feel back to reality, um, there's some benefit there. Um, obviously, research needs to be done to prove out that you know, it's actually still as efficacious as the eight-hour trip. Um, these are just other areas of law that it intersects with. Um, so, you know, it's pretty much everything that you see in the cannabis industry. Uh, all areas of law are kind of uh, involved. So I'm just going to pause there. I'm going to kick it over to Mr. Michael Greco, and he could talk a little bit about um, some of the stuff we've been doing here in Florida. Definitely. So I'm an attorney as well. So back in law school, they, they told us to KISS, which was keep it simple, stupid. So I'm going to keep it as simple as possible. One of the biggest problems that we have, especially in the psychedelics and the psilocybin space in particular, is we can all blame Richard Nixon because the war on drugs and essentially talking about psychedelics with the layperson, with the average person, and trying to divert them away from thinking that everybody is listening to Pink Floyd and everybody's wearing a tie-dye shirt and it's not about treatment and real clinical uses. It's a really tough conversation to have with folks, especially kind of stuffy politicians. And clearly I'm not a stuffy politician, but there's a lot of them. And especially in Florida, I mean, we live, I live in Miami Beach and I don't know where in Florida all y'all live, but I'll tell you that once you clear Palm Beach, it is a different world. You're in South Georgia. And when you're up in Tallahassee, which I've been for the last 60 days, this is why I need a drink, but maybe I need one of those, those cannabis drinks over there. But spending the last 60 days in Tallahassee is pretty tough, but trying to have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with people, even on both sides of the aisle, this isn't just about trying to break it down for a 75-year-old Republican who lives in Pensacola. This is even for an average Democrat that just doesn't understand the clinical applications 
of psychedelics and specifically psilocybin. So by continuing to file these bills, I filed one last year that was a monster, didn't even get a Senate sponsor, um, but it made international news. And Dustin and I were pounding the pavement trying to get people to understand what it is that we're talking about. Year two, instead of filing a 60-page bill, we file a two-page bill. And we plagiarized the Texas bill. And yes, as you saw in one of the slides, Texas, of all places, has a, has a law right now which is, allows for a state-sponsored study of magic mushrooms. And we plagiarized that. We're running it through the system now and doing it kind of selling it through that veteran space, trying to get folks in the veteran space to get on board. I actually, one of my, our biggest advocates now is the four-time Republican sheriff out of St. John's County, um, who is now a huge veterans advocate and a huge advocate in the space. Uh, so we are moving the needle on this. We're gonna continue to try to do it. A lot of states are well behind even us when it comes to even having the conversation, but it is really challenging. It's just like it's, and another one of the challenges is people tend to conflate the legalization of marijuana with the psychedelic space. And that becomes a real challenge as well, even with the press. I deal with the press a lot on this. They love doing stories. They love talking about it during sweeps. They love writing articles about it, but they want to talk about weed. And I try to explain to them that is a great conversation, but it is a separate conversation. And that has been the real challenge that I've had because I'm really the only person, the, I'm really the only elected official in Florida who is talking about this. And I was lucky to get a Senate sponsor this past year um, who is the minority leader on the Senate side, but she was just kind of following my lead and doing me a favor. But I'm the one that's stuck speaking about it. When I say stuck, it's because it's a very lonely place to be. Um, but I'm gonna continue to do it. I'm gonna continue working with advocates and working with folks that help me write these bills, folks like Dustin, um, but we need as much of an army as possible to get the word out, not just to folks who are attending conventions like this, but everybody, everybody on the street that needs to understand that there are, I mean, if you Google my name or Dustin's name and you see all of the reports, all of the studies that, that we've been a part of, and you take those and you send those links to five or 10 people and educate people, it makes it a lot easier to have a statewide conversation and a national conversation. I mean, the feds are funding studies now. It's the first time they started doing it last year after having it become a breakthrough um, item just a few years prior to that. They were doing studies on this back in the 50s and the 60s. And I said, blame Richard Nixon for essentially stopping decades of applied research and data and essentially throwing it in the garbage. And it, and it started in the United States and it went international. There's a couple Netflix documentaries on how the psychedelic space essentially got killed for three or four decades by the decisions of one or two people. And it was really, it was really just an F you to the hippies. And it was the same thing with weed. And we've been able to reverse that on the cannabis space, but we've had a bigger challenge doing it in the psychedelic space because it's just not that sexy for a lot of people, whether it be local officials, whether it be law enforcement, you know, because we, we had a, a guy that committed a murder down in South Beach just last year, and he was tripping balls on mushrooms, but he wasn't doing it in the same way that we're talking about. We're talking about doing it in a clinical capacity. And I had to go out and aggressively go out and do study, do, do interviews uh, with local and regional uh, coverage to make sure that we were counteracting that message because a lot of these don't just say no folks and these anti-drug groups 
were coming out and saying, see, this is what we're talking about. And they were trying to stop the momentum that we had already created. Uh, we want to open up to questions. And see, yeah, yeah, I think questions. Take advantage. Take, I mean, listen, you've got an expert here. You've got somebody who's actually in office who's dealing with this now, and I can tell you what's real and what's not, what's you know, what's hyperbole and what really goes on up in the legislature on this issue or similar type of issues. So take advantage of us while we're here. Anybody? Who wants to break that? Back? Uh, uh, Justin or Michael, you guys can, either one of you can answer it. From a regulatory standpoint, and I'll just use Florida, vertical, MMCCs, and then we have CBD stores, hemp stores, or whatever, smoke stores. Now, how do you, and who's going to regulate it, or like what department? And when we say clinics, um, are they still going to be pop-ups as well? Or are the MMCCs going to be able to open that line? And you, how is that going to work? So, so on the psychedelic space, this is we're really, really focusing on hardcore critical, clinical application because it's the only way that we can get to that next conversation, whether it be the decrim conversation, whether it be a legalization. And, and that's a real challenge as well because I get, we get pushback if we start running bills or start talking about too much of a heavily regulated scheme because there is a huge, very vocal decrim and legalization culture out there. Folks who reach out, advocates, advocates who are really pushing that, and that's and it's a valid thing to be advocating for. But it's almost like if if we don't hit a grand slam and get to decrim and get to that space, then it's almost like why are we why are we doing it to some folks? And I disagree with that because I think it needs to be an incremental uh, approach to getting people to understand and to educate themselves into the space. So the approach in most states, you know, Oregon probably Oregon obviously has the most liberal scheme, but in states like Florida in particular, you're going to talk about this kind of the same way that ketamine is done now, where it's done in a very clinical controlled environment. It's going to be under the Department of Health more than likely and it would come through that space as opposed to coming through say the Department of Agriculture or something along those lines because we really want it to be a lab coat presentation in order to be able to sell it to the general public. Can an MMTC license holder do it as well? No, this will be, this is a completely, like I said, the, when, people, when, when, when folks start conflating marijuana and, and psychedelics, you're talking apples and dump trucks. It's a completely well, we're different deal. Adult rec in Massachusetts, for example, in a couple of months, and we can sell hemp products there. I'm just trying to figure out: is my store one day can carry? Hemp? I'll tell you right now. I mean, not in the near future. Potentially down the road, it it could potentially happen. I mean, in the Netherlands, for example, you go into they, they're called smart shops, and you can buy them. Right now, the way the legal framework is that we're rolling out is you don't have licensed retail stores like you do in cannabis, you have licensed service centers. So these are locations where it's actually administered. So you're not walking into a store pulling products off the shelf. Now further down the road, will we potentially get there? Potentially, but even when we get there, there will likely be similar regulations that we see with cannabis and alcohol not being mixed. I could imagine that there might be similar regulations that if you're a retail store, you, could, you can't sell cannabis and psychedelics, possibly. So down the road, potentially. And, and, and just, just a corollary to that. I, being pragmatic is not sexy. And I'm trying as, as, as best as I can to be pragmatic and understand that 
we are in a political culture in Florida that is not welcoming to even having this conversation. So it, it's really tough. Like we're, we're really trying to go one inch at a time. And there's a lot of pushback, especially from the conservative far right, whether it be, and it's, whether it be issues like this or gambling or certain things that they just don't want to have the conversation. And the fear is people, what they envision, which is people being able to go into a store, buying mushrooms and going home and it not being a controlled situation. And even now amongst elected officials, I, they, half of them still think that's what it is. So regardless as to how much I give them, how much literature I give them, how many conversations I have with them. So it is a real challenge. And then if you extrapolate out that out to the, the general public, that's where you get a lot of, a lot of pushback because they just don't know. So the more we do to try to promote this through earned media, and, and, and just, just through conversation, we're gonna to continue to do it, but it's, it's a multi-year process just to get to the point where it's being accepted as a bill that people will even talk about. Daniel? Uh, what do you think your, uh, your colleagues that are resistant to the idea, what do you think that they need to change their mind? Well, that's, that's why I brought up the veteran issue. So I, I, I really, you know, it's in Florida, if you can tether something to military veterans, it's going to happen. It's just, and, and you've got to get advocates from, from the street, from that space in order to, to move it. And that's why when we go out there and we have reports done, and then all of a sudden I get an unsolicited call, like I said, from a Republican sheriff from like one of the deepest, reddest parts of Florida who wants to advocate on behalf of veterans and law enforcement. I need 10 of those. I need an army of those. And it really does take time to get into those different markets and try to sell it. I've, this isn't the only thing I'm doing. You know, so I wish I could spend all of my time working this one issue. This is one of 10 issues that I file bills on every year. And the stuff that I think is gonna be more successful, I spend more time on. But in the off season, I essentially spend a plurality of my time on this issue because I do think it is an important issue. I have met so many people, whether it be on the, in the dying with dignity space or whether it be with the PTSD depression space, whether it be on the addiction space, all of those different spaces that we're trying to talk about and you know, with victims of, of sexual abuse when they were children, all it, it's, I, I moved every time I have one of those conversations and it keeps me going. But again, to, to get to those colleagues that are just knee-jerk resistant to it is getting them to not only understand the, the angle with veterans who have PTSD and depression, but getting them to meet people who have either been through the process or people who want to go through the process and the struggles that they're having with traditional treatments in that space. And we're actually over time, so I apologize. We're happy to kind of talk off to the side afterwards. But thank you guys so much for, for listening and uh, do what you can to push this industry forward. You've got questions, we've got answers. Business leadership, ownership, and sales can be challenging. Tune into the Accelerate Your Business Growth podcast to learn from the world's experts. Join me, your host, Diane Helbig, as I chat with people who have expertise in various areas of business. You'll enjoy the lively conversations that are focused on providing you with the ideas, tips, and suggestions you need to realize greater success. 
Get what you need for your business when you need it from the people who have the answers. Accelerate Your Business Growth is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and is available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.